<laughs> so, mellow greetings one and all. I'm Christopher Driver, and with me as always is Mr. Jordan Rye. You are tuned yep. into Frivolous Gravitas, a podcast of sub substantive conversations. Uh, you're here for some more intellectual gray matter comestibles. You're in the right place. Um, for those tuning in on iTunes, welcome, bienvenue. You're speaking with Canadians. Yeah. All monikers aside, though, let's just get straight into chewing the fat. Um, yeah, it's, it's like a hard skip. <laughs> uh, so remember, you may always engage by uh, leaving your thoughts and interests and engagements in the comments there. We always love to hear what you have to say. And uh, don't be shy. All comments are welcome. So t today we're going to cover some cultural lore and our species propensity for creating gods through storytelling. And we'll let Jordan kick us off and just talk about some old uh, old mythologies and work. we'll work a little bit through chronological order, I guess, starting yeah. with the oldest and bringing so, in the new. Yeah, I do want to talk about the gods, but I think one of the things is that I've noticed recently, and this is kind of like a thought, it's going to be probably more of a thought experiment for me because I've been thinking about this for a couple of weeks. Um, and that is to say that, you know, the gods are dead, long live the gods. And we, now we have a new set of gods. Um, and I've noticed that we have this propensity in, in the way we act to engage in almost a passive myth making. And this can be seen way, way back in time, back uh, to what we would describe as kind of our ancient sacred texts. Um, these texts that even though no one believes in that specific way that society is built around. So, you know, you get books like um, the Vedas, which actually the Hindu religion is actually still going quite strong, but others really aren't. Um, there's very few uh, worshippers of the ancient Mesopotamian uh, religions or the ancient Mesoamerican religions um, or the ancient Greek religion, which kind of Christianity put and then Islam put quite the uh, uh, nail in the coffin there um, because they were um more representative stories i would say but that's not today's conversation but what was happening <coughs> was you get these religions weren't started around um there's a god i saw him let's go worship him no um that would be pretty cool uh or something like you know stargate aliens come down and say yo i'm your god and all they're all like well obviously he landed in a spaceship um but what happened was these stories got amalgamated as far as we can tell all over the world. This happened, this, this wasn't um, just subject to one area. Okay. The best way to think of it is you have a bunch of cavemen and women uh, sitting around a campfire and what are they going to do? Well, it's the end of the day. They're tired from doing all that hunting and gathering and fishing and, weaving and stuff, uh, whatever cavemen do, um, accounting, I guess, but they <laughs> kicking rocks, <laughs> <laughs> you owe me 6% interest on that fish stock. No. Um, 
they would sit around and tell stories. And we know this because there is a, in every single culture, um, fight me on this, every single culture had this, had an oral tradition at some point. Even in fact, we still have an oral tradition in our culture. It's just overshadowed by a lot of our other institutions of storytelling that we uh, have now. That's also another story. I'm gonna write that one down. I wanna talk about that. Um, so I really want to talk about that one day, but what is interesting is that these got codified slowly over time into kind of canon, which, um, for those watching canon is not a canon canon is like, um, the accepted story. So you get something like Star Wars where everyone's worrying about what's canon. Oh no, he actually didn't do that. No, these books aren't canon anymore. This isn't what happened in the story. This is a true version of story. And this comes from Catholics who, you know, had all these other books in the Bible that they're like, no, 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 no. That's not part of the Jesus story. This is part of the Jesus story. This is the canon. That's probably so, the most relatable reference too, because the canonization of the different Bibles is basically how they chose the the different creeds or sects of uh, of Christianity. Yeah, it's based on which books they allow in and which interpretations they allow in as standard. Um, sometimes, uh, sometimes it was something way stupider. <laughs> yeah, but can canonization of the Bible is probably the most relatable reference I think to canon. Yeah, and. We argue about this constantly nowadays with our new mythologies, which, you know, spoilers, I guess. But what would happen is, again, these stories kept getting told over millennia, like literal millennia. Like they, they start from the beginnings of language, uh, You probably maybe even before where, you know, you can tell a story without words. It's just not going to be as um, sophisticated. And so as time goes on, as humans engage with their environment and become more like the humans we see today, uh, there are stories evolved with us. And around about, you know, the early Greek period, uh, a new technology starts coming into play, which is writing. And um, we start writing down these stories and drawing also becomes more sophisticated this time too. Um, <clears throat> and what happens is we take some intrepid individuals start taking down hearsay stories and this mythology that's created slowly. And that's kind of the thing. And they write it down. And we get things like Homer, we get stuff like the Vedas, we get stuff like um, Lao Tzu, um, Confucius. It's all in the same general time period actually as well, which is very strange. Well, not strange. It's really interesting. Um, and that's another story too. But these books start getting written down and all of a sudden we have this um this these stories and they're written down and they're codified they're canonized um and they're set down and they can no longer change but what's interesting about the oral histories or the oral stories is that they didn't really change all that much over the course of thousands of years well they they, they improved and they got more sophisticated and more details got added and a couple characters got added and the gods changed form literally like the gods in the early greek period are a lot different than the gods in the late greek period in fact you have like the titans were kind of like 
proto gods as not important. And so, but what the important thing I think for what I'm talking about here is that the gods were a negotiated process that came about through interaction with the real world. And so <clears throat> you get ideas like Neptune and Zeus and, uh, you know, Poseidon and characters like Achilles and Hector and Andromache, who we got wrong in that other podcast. And I remembered it. And thank you for correcting us, Chris. <laughs> no, we both uh, got it wrong. Yeah. Uh, I should have known that. Close but, though. It was close. But uh, start with, we got an A one, but these characters and gods and the characters aren't too far off from gods. If you see what Achilles can do, um, you get like the buffest, you know, Navy SEAL and he'll be like, that guy's a beast. Uh, <laughs> and um, he was a bit of a beast. And the these superhuman characters represent what humanity can do. And the gods represent nature itself. Oversimplification, I know. But but I think we it? also reference the, the superhuman characteristics and actions and behaviors of human characters through mm -hmm. our mythologies too. So it, it's almost like um, a story of transcendence where you get mythologies that are wrapped inside of the the gods you have like cleobis and bido how it explains sort of or it describes sort of um a higher virtue for humans to live by based on a story that's related to or relative to the gods or like you get half gods like hercules yeah uh, who also have their own that was an like hercules is always interesting because he's a god well, he's a half god and zeus is like you're special and he's like i'm special and he proceeds to screw up <laughs> yeah, like a human <laughs> yeah and um most of i think now oh, i might put some books in the in the comments i went on a mythology kick a couple of years ago like a heavy kick um man i should just start doing drugs <laughs> uh but um the these people were created by sitting around going, what do you want to talk about? I want to talk about, you know, the sea. And I want to talk about a story of someone engaging with the sea. And you don't, well, if you're telling someone, okay, so there's a storm that's coming and a kid asks you and you're in the Neolithic period. So, you know, a, you're proto-civilization and your kid asks you, why is there wind? <laughs> and you have to go, um, why does the sea calm some days and why is it you know really seeming to be angry other days and well you know there's it's it's a there's a force but the force is personified by a god so this is the sea itself is a uh is the god personified no uh, what's the opposite of personified manifest. objectified no no not really i wouldn't say that maybe manifest no, that's not even right either. Anyway, maybe but I'll put I think it... what you're trying to say is like they're anthropomorphizing forces, basically. Right. Like so and nature's forces are becoming characters. Right. So what they're doing, and you actually the word character is a great way of putting it because they are in it, trying to explain, and I, there was a woman who wrote a book literally called Mythology, I think. And um, she essentially, her claim was that... Um, was that the 
Greek myths were a way for the Greeks to explain um, were, were to explain the world around them. And you don't explain the world through, we can't explain the world through science, but it creates a, you need to do it in a certain way. You're seeing just truth when you're looking at science. Like, what are we seeing? Well, we're seeing hydrogen here. Well, that doesn't tell you anything that you can really use other than, you know, for, okay, what can I use hydrogen for? It's very clinical. It's very this and that. It doesn't tell you why you have hydrogen. It Most myths are conjured up before the scientific method became standard practice, though, I think. Yeah. Um, I think Greenblatt would, uh, uh, was it Greenblatt? He would say that the scientific method has always existed, which it has. You know, people being like, how do I get rock into sharp yeah, rock? Calculus has always existed, but until we discover it, we don't use it, then... <laughs> no, I mean, not more in like the, uh, it's always kind of there. It's kind of always been accidentally used in history. There's always been a guy who's just been sitting around and he's been accidentally using the, like for as far back, you know, I'm going to try a bunch of stuff and see what works. And we've accidentally used the scientific method forever. Um, and that's a lot of our like stuff like, um, what's his name? Uh, ancient Greek and Syracuse, Archimedes. He would do a bunch of scientific method stuff. I'm going to test stuff. And uh, Aristotle was um, accidentally using it here and there. And but I think Aristotle kind of invented the process. Yeah, you could make that argument. Um, <laughs> really well, gathered animals from all over the world and then started cataloging them. And that, like that is very scientific. Whereas yeah. before people just thought about stuff in a scientific way, but without, mm-hmm. um, w- without actually making a rigorous study of it. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Whenever I think about... Aristotle, I don't think about him sitting around like teaching Alexander. I think about him wandering around looking at plants. <laughs> like literally. Yeah, but, that's what he spent most of his life doing, so my internet is terrible. I can't look at it's not looking at anything. But up. I mean he got that from Plato, of course, and then but Plato never Plato wrote about Socrates and stuff, like ideas of thought, and he had like right. Platonic solids and atomic theory and things like right. that. But he right. didn't really do a rigorous process of it. He did a rigorous process of the thought, but he didn't do a rigorous process of the writing. Yeah. It, Plato is a lot more interested in what we would now call anthropology <laughs> yeah. um, or psychology. And Yeah, he but, was more uh, like psychology being a science, where today we're still kind of like, eh, it's kind of a science. But <laughs> Yeah, when you do it right, it's a science. <laughs> But yeah, but it doesn't have back- defini- it doesn't have <clears throat> definitive values or results. Do you know what I mean? Like that's the difference between um, sciences. It's not that it's not science. It's just that it's distinctly different from something that's quantifiable. Yeah. Where was I? Right. So that was it. Sorry, my brain just had to come back. Science tells you a lot about the what and a lot about the how. It can even tell you a bit about the why but it doesn't really tell you what you're supposed to do with it. So, you know, it's kind of like Auten is type of thing, but that argument aside, you really need to nest that information within a story in order to know how to use it properly. Okay. I've got a motor, uh, but, and I know how the motor works you know, like a little magneto machine, you hook a power cell up to it. What can I do with it? Well, what happens is a lot of times someone tells us a story about how they used it. And then we're like, Oh, I should try that. And all of a sudden you have this thing, this mythology of this one guy who hooked the motor up to his, you know, blinds and 
and now he just presses a button and those blinds go up automatically and you're like oh i can do that and so we tell each other stories and this is what we did because it's easier to tell each other stories especially in verse for some reason that's that's a neat thing i'd like to get an expert on that um and this goes back to our rap hip-hop episode where for some reason we can uh, remember things better when it rhymes and has a beat that's just something yeah so that's just something that is and so this they weren't just sitting around telling each other prose like once upon a time there was a guy called darth vader no it was uh you know actually i don't even know where my iliad is it's all right we know what stories are (laughs) yeah so like i sing you a song of gods and men or something or the deeds of um so can't look it up but i think it's because it rouses more of our senses that way like because we have so much of our brains dedicated to our visual perception that when you speak or have stories that bring up imagery it's much easier for us to remember that way and then audio sort of reinforces the mental imagery yeah we can remember audio separately from words and separately from concepts and separately well, from like tempo. So it's kind of like you're stimulating more parts of the brain when you're telling a story in verse than if you're just speaking it outright. That's well, just yeah. my, my best guess. Not- it's kind of like sing O Canada and then write it down. You'll sing O Canada flawlessly or if for our American ones, sing the Star Spangled Banner. Like I could probably sing the Star Spangled Banner, but if you tell me to write down the words to Star Spangled Banner, I'm not going to be able to do it. I'm going well, to actually literally have to sing it, it to my yeah, sing it to myself and then write it down as I'm going. And this is just something weird that happens. And so we would, you get these I don't know bards or something, but it was pretty much just people just sitting around uh, talking to each other and telling stories to each other, and the stories would get would meld together kind of like you see in the marvel movies now but we'll get to that in a bit but what happens is you know all of a sudden you get a story one guy tells a story about you know this guy half god he's super strong he goes and and does a thing and everyone's like oh that's great and i and then another guy will tell a story about um uh the god zeus and what kind of guy he is and also over time the gods get fleshed out as people over time this happens and eventually people like horace and ovid and people like that would um write it down as kind of definitive versions but that's not really how they were written and they put they they those poets put their own kind of flourish onto it this is kind of what they wanted to see and they did an amazing job but they weren't telling their own stories they were writing down stories kind of like the brothers Grimm caught up you know going around Germany uh collecting um fairy stories and um, And books of the Bible were a lot like that too I mean I know religious fanatics will say that God explicitly wrote them through somebody or whatever but like mm -hmm. technically speaking if you look back paleontology paleontologically (laughs) um you could find people had written these stories down in different ways like the epic of gilgamesh being converted into like the noah's ark story things like that are very very common too yeah where they Um, repurpose stories and characters into a new verse that suits a new culture and a new a new tradition basically yeah and um 
This is really, um, I mean, I don't know if this is obvious actually, in something like um, the Aenid, which is the Roman Iliad pretty much, um, written by Livy. <clears throat> the Aenid oh. is an awesome story though, by the written way. By For any Virgil. of our listeners, they should definitely Jeez. check that out. Oh man, I just committed a sin there. So it's written by Virgil, uh, <laughs> not Livy. Uh, uh, and... I don't think we heard you. <laughs> oh, geez, sorry. Well, good. Um, so uh, essentially, he was saying, okay, this minor character in the Iliad, which is one of the best examples of what we're talking about, is, you know, traveled the world after kind of Odyssey mm-hmm. style like Ulysses. And he. Um, ended up founding the city of Rome and instituting it as, you know, a holy city. And we have this new, you could call it propaganda, but it's still, you know, good story. It's a, it's a myth that it's a myth of Rome kind of that res that just like you said, it's one that's almost updated for the new context. This is what Rome is. And he wrote a story to say, the Greeks had their thing going on. This is particularly Roman. So they wrote their own story and they wrote their own um, kind of um, origin story. And uh, You're talking about Romulus and Remus? No. So this happened after Romulus and Remus. I think Romulus and Remus came around and were like, we're going to start. They, they like set the foundation, but then it quickly got um, after a couple generations, it became subject to tyrants if 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 i've got my mythological time scale off just that's always my problem with myths is figuring out the chronology yeah um and then um after a couple bad emperor uh, not emperors kings um and then one's called uh tyrannus he i think jesus my internet tyrannus the tyrant yeah it's my internet so what happens is um they make a new story for themselves. And it's based on all these stories that people were telling around campfires and explaining the world with. And then all of a sudden they come around and say, I'm going to explain the world that we have now based on what we see. And it was kind of a Augustinian um, propaganda. <clears throat> and uh, because it was written during the reign of um, Emperor Augustine, not St. Augustine, different guy. And uh, they... Augustus, not Augustine, sorry. So you have this process, this slow process of evolution of these stories, and eventually they get codified. But what happens is uh, then they stop being able to explain the world. They kind of get discarded. And this is what happened when Christianity came around, and everyone's like, well, this is a better story. And I cynicism atheist cynics whatever i don't really care what you think at this point because uh they what happened was um the western world kind of said these stories are great but i like this and so (laughs) the but the stories never really left the christians still read the iliad and the odyssey and they still read um they still read, well, they loved Aristotle uh, because it propped up um, St. Augustine and um, Thomas Aquinas, who used it thoroughly and called him the philosopher. And um, they used a lot of that. But what's interesting is that the stories 
never really left. And we have them in print now and everyone says, well, you got to read the story. But we don't have this expectation that this is what happened. Um, this is the story of the gods that happened. It doesn't really matter that that's not, <clears throat> excuse me, how the reality works anymore because there's an aspect to it. And this is kind of what I want to get to in the stories that transcends some scientific reality, it engages in a kind of a mythological truth that points to, I would say the logos. Oh yeah, there's Jordan talking about the logos again, but yeah. Okay. So the logos is that thing that I talk about where that is the relationship between reality and your perception. Ooh, that doesn't really explain it at all. Um, when you are, you can't really see the logos. It's just, logos is just kind of the way things exist. And that objective reality, you can also call it, you know, the word of God, the logic to the system of the universe might be a good way of putting it. Um, logos being kind of a proto word for logic. Um, and the there's something about the story of um, the, some of these old stories that really hit home and, and you really, it doesn't matter what cultural context you're in. Um, you can read the Greek myths and, um, still and be in Japan and still understand, like, I get this. Um, and you can be in, uh, like I've read. Likewise, the Japanese can read the Greek or the, the Greeks can read the Japanese myths and get the same type of response from it. Like it's sort of universal to our culture entirely. Yeah, like I've read, um, I've read the, uh, the Three Kingdoms, uh, the Romance of the Three Kingdoms, which was really interesting. It reminded me a lot of uh, the ancient Greek stories, but um, in a Chinese context. Um, and there's a reason why the Chinese just keep making game after game after movie after game, and, and like TV shows on this one instance in their history. Kind of like we keep making movies about. Uh, I don't know. The Wild West. Well, well, yeah, we'll get to that. <laughs> because one of the things that's happening, especially, you know what, let's just get into it. Westerns are important to our society. There, I said it. <laughs> and why is that? Because there's something about something like the Aenid, like a Western, like uh, the Romance of the Three Kingdoms, like the Vedas, that explain what is going on and how to act in the system that they are in. And what's interesting is that when you study them, you become more attuned to what's going on around you and not it's like, oh, I'm no, I understand. I, I kind of understand. And it's this heuristic where an intelligent person can understand what's going on. But sometimes people need a bit of help because not everyone can be, uh, you know, some people aren't, not everyone's a genius. Um, I heard I think a, there's a danger in that though. And, and like choosing one interpretation over the other because of somebody's intellectual that. prowess or whatever, like, no, I, I think it's more of a feeling storytelling and cultures are more well, felt than understood. Well, that's what I'm saying. We can't all be, we can't all be Virgil. <laughs> we can't all be, um, uh, you know, or uh, we could, but it would just be like child's play at that point. It wouldn't actually be anything special. 
Virgil would just be like, oh, you write like a teenager. <laughs> if yeah. all your teenagers could write like that. There is, there are differences in, in, in capability between people. I'm not really gonna. But the interpretability, cool. I think, what makes a, um, a myth really stand out and stand the test of time, I think, is the, the generalization of it. The, yeah, the, the universality the, the, of it. Is, yeah, everybody can sort of get the right. same type of message from it, even if it's not explicitly directly the same interpretation. People feel the same thing from the same stories. Yes, and that's what's important about them, is that infused in these by the um, by the great minds that came up with them. And the, gate, and, and the thing is, is that a lot of these myths, they're important not because great minds came up with them. A lot of these stories have been being told for like maybe even tens of thousands of years, like an absurdly long amount of time. And they've been refined for that amount of years. Like the stories of uh, one of them is um, Baucus and uh, Philemon, which is a story that just gets me right here every single time. Why? I have no cultural context to it. I am not Greek. I am not I don't believe in the gods, blah, 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 but it still hits me like a hammer because it's about a couple that gets visited, this old couple that gets visited by um, uh, Hermes and, um, and uh, oh man, I almost said Jupiter, Zeus. Um, and they have Hermes and Zeus are juice, Zeus. <laughs> the juice. <laughs> this is the juice. I've got the juice. Um, basically kind of like OJ. <laughs> it's just like plug it in and need some juice you know like in electricity i anyway. know simpson oj simpson oh yeah i know <laughs> but the um they essentially just give these two old people a hard time and they're like you know they're not rich and they've got a goose and they say oh feed us that goose and they're like oh yes because you know law of hospitality you give what you have to people on the road and they end up being perfect get, uh, guests, uh, hosts, even though they screw up a bit. They're trying as hard as they can and they screw up and they say, you know, please ask for our forgiveness, blah, 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 because, you know, Zeus and Hermes are playing games with them and saying, hey, let's screw it up. We're going to make them try to be good hosts and get in the way of them doing that with our magic powers. And so they screw up and they say, you know, you guys have been exemplary beyond anything we could have asked for. You maintained uh you know everything in the face of you know you were good hosts in spite of everything that happened you you obviously are good people we'll give you anything you want and the thing they ask for is they want to die at the same time because they're so in love with each other and so what happens is they okay he says like perfect and they don't want to live one moment without each other which is just you know hits you right here and they become priests of this temple to Zeus for the rest of their lives. And when they die, what happens is, you know, they sink into the earth and then this tree grows up and it's the type of tree that kind of winds around itself. And that explains why that tree exists in the world. So this is how they told their stories. What's with that tree? Oh, well, that's a great story. And they would tell themselves that story and not, they wouldn't tell them about the tree. They'd say, okay, that's why that tree exists. Okay, good. The story of Philemon and Bach. Baucus. No, no, no. The thing that's important to that story is what it tells you about 
you know, things like marriage, things like hospitality, things like do unto others. Um, and this the is geography, like it helps you plan and understand the map of your surrounding areas and the different cultures around you too. Like they have myths about um, rivers oh, yeah. and why there's different color people in the other side of a river kind of thing. Yeah. Herodotus is really funny. Uh, he didn't yeah. tell myths. <laughs> he was trying to write history, but he's like, black people are the best. They have... <laughs> Uh, some really cool stuff going on. They're super strong. They're the smartest. He, they like, got spices. <laughs> and he thought that their uh, that their semen was actually black. Because <laughs> he, well, he, I guess it he, shows he never seen one. But <laughs> well, he'd probably seen one, but like no, I meant didn't the semen. Yeah, no, he probably didn't <laughs> see one. He also thought that the um, Arabians had goats with like seven foot long tails that they put on carts. That the Arabians would put on carts for them and they just walk around with these carts behind them and it's just like, that probably didn't happen but it's a good story but that's more of a Herodotus was telling a history but trying. he was trying he was he was the first historian to be he fair. was surprisingly accurate about some weird stuff um <clears throat> Like I think trying. his method though like his approach to the detail is what made him so famous not yeah. specifically the details themselves, but the fact that he was trying to chronicle things in oh. writing was the first time people had ever done that, really. Yes, that that's. But actually, another thing about him was that he did infuse um, a lot of uh, myth into it because he was talking about Xerxes and Darian and uh, sorry Darius. Yeah, but I think he believed it, like sincerely. <laughs> well, they had no reason to believe otherwise and like really it didn't matter what the truth was at that point because they're you know they're, he's telling a history of the persians um from a greek perspective but he gets into stuff like you know and then the pharaoh of egypt who was a subject of the persians at the time went to the sphinx and the sphinx asked him a question and the riddle of the sphinx happened uh and then um the like I'm pretty sure that's not what happened, but it's infusing that into their reality. This is how they saw things. I don't want to make a postmodernist thing because it's not actually how things were, but the story of their world existed like that. And not everyone believed that. It's like just because Herodotus wrote it doesn't because there were, he did have his critics because you have people like um, uh, Thucydides who wrote the Peloponnesian Wars and this is a history. It's boring because <laughs> it's 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 a war between uh, it documents the the Peloponnesian Wars, and it's very matter of fact. There's very little mythology in it. But that's the Sparta Greek War, right? Oh man, I studied it very recently. It is yes, um, yeah, Sparta and Athens, and you have. A bunch of leagues get together and fight each other because that the wasn't like, like the Nebuchadnezzar one with the Persians across the the mountain ranges and stuff. Um, that was in Herodotus. I think he did cover that, but the oh, okay, Peloton that's why I'm confusing them. Then he did. Yeah, do the Greek histories are they're not really taught, but the what happens is uh, short story. The Persians decided that the Greeks were much too strong to fight head on. So what they're going to do is. Um, and this is our problems are not new. They sent in people to influence the people there and turn them against each other and divide and conquer. So they're like, they sent in propagandists, essentially. A ton of them flooded. It's the every... media episode. <laughs> yeah. Um, our problems are not new. <laughs> 
and so all of them um but the and so they started a bunch of wars uh but the persian empire declined anyways um and the that's not really mythology so let's skip ahead because i think i've made my point to what's happened we've killed all these gods we've even you know uh hate to say it but the the christian god is almost half in the bag now why is that and i think what are you basing that off of though i'm just curious there's a lot of atheists yeah but there's still a lot of christians oh no i know that's why i only say half half is it's it's still strong but it's i don't think half of all christians have left the faith though no 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 well since the middle ages yeah (laughs) oh i'm thinking like long time scale here so if we compare nowadays to um a you know even around the reformation they would call us a godless society and go to war with us catholics and the protestants would like south america and latin america is very very religious and all of africa is very religious and all of india is very religious and well india is very um very they, they they're very strong in their hindu faith it's just it's a throwaway comment let's not dwell on it too much oh sorry i thought it was relative sorry no um it's um although i hear christianity is taking hold in china for i need to look that up it's a rumor but it's a really interesting one there's but, enough people in china <laughs> yeah i know but apparently it's like gangbusters over there people are eating it up but um I don't know why I would like to look into that. But, Jesus um, is communist. That's why. <laughs> no, it's because Jesus is way cool. <laughs> so, um, He's straight up commie. <laughs> that's another episode, but, um, the, oh, so we've sorry, abandoned my, their gods. Sorry. My brain went to that, that like, I know. So my brain went somewhere completely wrong. Um, yeah. So we've abandoned a lot of these other gods, but the, actions that made those gods originally haven't gone away the aspect of our humanity that does that that storytelling we're storytellers that hasn't changed at all and what happens is we just do it better and we do it faster and we do it in more detail in more depth and you get people writing myths um based on the way they see their reality around them so you get stuff in the early times you get stuff like um cervantes and you get stuff like milton who are like milton is very like he's going to reinvent the relationship oh i guess dante too they reinvent the relationship between man god and the devil uh by with these elaborate plays and you get stuff like um like shakespeare Shakespeare is an amazing example is because he wanted to tell stories that explained stuff for Shakespeare kind of, um, but he was exploring different themes. Um, the themes of which you can explore in, uh, I guess, if you really want to get into that particular thing, read the book, will to Pe- will of the world by Stephen Greenblatt. Don't take my word for it, but it's a great book, but, uh, gets into his themes and it also gets into the world of uh, Shakespeare, Stephen Shakespeare. But uh, the, these characters came alive instantly with Shakespeare. You get people like um, uh, Hamlet, uh, who, like, even if you haven't read Hamlet, you kind of have a 
general idea of who Hamlet is. And <laughs> okay, Hamlet was the kid, uh, the son of the king, who when the king married his uh, his mother, uh, so the king's his uncle, and married his mother, and he hates it. And everyone decides to just go and um, nuts, um, and everything ends in tragedy. And um, it's uh, another one would be another famous one would be Macbeth. Macbeth is that tragedy of the king who was tempted by fate to you know become king and he took it and his wife sitting in the background going like yo you should just kill people it'd be great kill the king he's in there right now here's a knife uh, <laughs> and so he does it and then he um has to you see the internal conflict of his ambition going through the whole play it's it's brilliant it's absolutely brilliant but the the, the glory of it is, is that he didn't ignore the any classes he didn't he was telling stories based on how he saw the world and he was a brilliant man because i recently read a a definition of intelligence recently that i just thought was brilliant where intelligence and this is kind of a greek definition where intelligence is the ability to see the world as it is and i I just think that's fascinating because now that doesn't mean that that's not the same thing as capability where I can just lift rocks really well. But um, you see what needs to be done. You see the world as it is. And Shakespeare definitely saw the world as it is in his shows in his work because it resonated instantly with, with England. And then it resonated instantly with you know, France and Germany. And the Russians absolutely loved Shakespeare. It's in, uh, if you read like Tolstoy or um, uh, what's his name? wrote the idiot uh dostoevsky? dostoevsky he references shakespeare quite a bit heck um the movie ran is king lear set in samurai times like and it's one of the best adaptations of shakespeare ever <laughs> we get it um the there's an adaptation of coriolanus highly recommend it with gerard butler and uh ralph fines and it's set in they 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 spruce it up so that all the costume it's like set in america it looks like the romans look like americans and the volskians look like um kind of uh you know second world maybe soviet influenced uh italians essentially and all the combat is with guns but they don't change a line of dialogue <laughs> and it's, yeah, it's amazing like the Romeo and Juliet adaptation with the leonardo dicaprio that i love so much yeah i gotta watch and, that uh, one what was his name? Um, uh, God, that Spanish guy. Jorge. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Oh, John Leguizamo. That's the guy's name. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. So these stories, for some reason, when you stick them in different contexts, they still work. And the people, when you watch them, like you, it's interesting because you'll, you'll bring someone, random person to a Shakespeare play, and then um, they'll just get it. And it's weird because it's just, you know, all this flowery language, all this, you know, overly clever verbiage, all this intricate plots, but then they're watching it because he's such a master, people just get it. And my thesis, I guess here, this is not the end of the introduction, but uh, is that um, Hamlet and Macbeth and Romeo and Juliet, our part of our new pantheon, this almost democratized pantheon of characters that 
help us explain the world around us and through myth and we keep telling ourselves myth and different in in more interesting ways and this goes into westerns which i think explain a lot so you get people like i can't even think of the western but you get a lot of tropes you get the 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 lone gunslinger who's now a god he's 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 an american god not like neil gaiman's i think well maybe i guess but he's a god of america this this guy who goes and makes it on his own the the prospector the bandit the um the madam all these tropes that you like i don't you don't even need to watch a movie of it and you understand them you understand these people because they represent aspects of reality that we can see in reality and then we want to play with those we want to see what happens when we put different aspects of reality next to each other we want to and storytelling and myth making is kind of a way of doing that we can place aspects of reality into this crucible of story and come up with these new forms of understanding that we hadn't thought before like what happens when you put the gunslinger next to a i don't know next to i don't know uh, you know the pinkerton's chasing a gunslinger pinkerton's like a government bounty hunter and what happens when you put those two characters together or a more famous one being kind of the story of like the kid and the and and the cowboy you know you get that with the mandalorian right now and we want to tell these stories over and over again because you you can't just some stories are simple and you can just be like oh yeah it's this this is what it's trying to tell me and those stories are boring and they suck a story it's the same reason why we got into the rap and hip-hop thing where you want to unveil it it or unwraps itself in your head see the thing that's interesting to me though is the way that they correlate across time so when you look at stories from like yes. king minos where the, he's got a minotaur and a labyrinth where he you know traps kids because he's angry about his own child dying or whatever and then you can co- kind of draw parallels from that over to like john wayne looking after a kid when he's you know a murderer and killing you know yeah it, it's just interesting how we went from personifying gods and creating their inadequacies and insecurities and projecting ourselves into gods to have characters to discuss these types of abstract um, personality conflicts that we have mm-hmm. in just everyday life, but describe them in a supernatural way that that's more, it's more fanciful, but it's more interesting. So it's easier to remember and ruminate. And because of that, everybody can discuss those issues with other people with some kind of common baseline. So right. everybody has a common ground of relatability when they're discussing things that they otherwise couldn't articulate because they weren't as educated and they weren't as well read and yada, yada, yada. But when everybody knows the same story, the story can be it can be done in a play. It can be done in, in verse over a campfire. It could be done just as like a parent trying to put their kid to sleep or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And then you've got symbols all over the place, like idols and little, um, what do you call that? Like when you set up a, a shrine. Shrine, yeah. So uh, these types of reinforcement efforts sort of remind people of the stories every day that they walk by, even in their own house, or like mm-hmm. crucifixes around their necks and things like yeah. that. The story so, is so important that they need a reminder of it. Right. And because everybody's got the same types of reminders, I can walk in front of you wearing a crucible uh, crucifix and you can then understand the interpretation of my regalia. You right. Know I mean? And I'll probably understand that story and be like, oh, I probably shouldn't swear on this guy as much. 
or if someone's wearing relate to the person on a metaphysical question so you can mm -hmm. actually discuss things that you otherwise couldn't without the without the terminology or the baseline stories that underpin those types of discussions it's right. by having mythologies that everybody sort of understands and agrees upon collectively whether that's a marvel movie or whether that's uh an, an island with a, a half man half horse type creature yeah chasing um, around. well it's interesting because my students you bring this up because you make an interesting point because my students a lot of them don't know the story of christ which is you know strange i'm just like oh i don't under like you know who jesus is and they're like no and i'm like oh. like it's underpinning so many of our myths um like even our modern myths will reference the bible every once in a while so you kind of need to go back because you know all our all of our uh, you know, you see like Christian imagery just end up in everything because it's so powerful. And you, know, like, you have it show up in, showing up in Star Wars because people will, the reference, like you said, imbues it. I don't know if you said this, but I'm going to riff on you. Uh, I'm going to, but um, I'm, it imbues it with more, the scene with more meaning without actually saying he's being crucified. You know, it's like dull, bad storytelling. F, see me after class. Mm. And, you know, having kind of there's that scene where luke skywalker's hanging outside the cloud city and he's just kind of he's kind of just prostrate he's like asking for help and you kind of understand that he has just gone through uh hell he's gone through uh the underworld you know yes i know i'm not referencing jordan b peterson here but I'm more referencing people like um orpheus or something where you know they literally have to go through hell um or Hercules, who has to go through hell. Was that uh, also part of the Aeneid, where like he couldn't think, look back, or his? his no, that was Orpheus. That was, was Orpheus? A, that one hits me right here because like yeah, he's yeah. his love of his life. He goes and rescues her. He's like, yes, but you can't look back until she's out. And right at the last second, he looks back and pff, loses her forever. And to me, like, that's also similar to like Medusa, where you can't look her in the eyes, but you have to slay her. And then that story is kind of similar to the Hydra slaying the Hydra, where the heads keep uh, regenerating right, every time you cut one off. How many movies do that thing where it's like? It's like a hydra and everyone's like yeah that's, yeah <laughs> and, and that's then, all you need to say and, and they understand in, in the more, nature of the enemy <laughs> in more modern movies too you've always got a hero that is self-sacrificing like jesus in, in on that same tangent there just now, sort of what i was trying to get to I'm, no you you made a good point and i kind of off your point i want to make an elaboration i want to make an example of this point because i think it's worth it i'm going to take two characters um dido which is the queen of queen queen of uh carthage you know in the aenid and she spoilers it's been <laughs> it's been about 2000 years if, yeah, if, you, if haven't you haven't read seen it, it yet it's your fault <laughs> <laughs> you've had enough time um she uh tempts quite well does a good job of it tempts a aeneas aeneas um with you know stay with me you, we, I'll let, you know, we can rule this kingdom. You can be king of Carthage and we can rule over this great kingdom that I have here. And, you know, Carthage is depicted as this great city. Um, you know, famously it's Rome's greatest enemy and it will become Rome's greatest enemy. And so they're fated to be, you know, uh, adversaries on, in the international stage. And so he says, no, I must go and follow my destiny because, uh, one of the gods, Venus uh, comes around and she's like, yo, you can't stay with her. You need to follow your destiny or bad things will happen, blah, blah, blah. Or um, I don't remember the exact passage, but
but essentially the gods say you can't do that you got to go do what you need to do uh you have two paths here to choose and he chooses to follow his destiny instead of um actually a very good option of just living with this woman that absolutely adores him uh and having this kingdom that he can rule over benevolently blah 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 um but he leaves and what happens is as he's leaving he sees he looks over and dido lights this giant pyre up and um sacrifices herself in her grief and this is you know seen as like yeah she lost what she had so there's no point in living she sees that it's necessary and people in the past would have understand that and people nowadays would not really understand that i'm gonna go not just kill myself because she could have uh she could have easily done something easier like cleopatra using another myth to explain a myth here we go uh and she used a snake to you know poison herself in the bathtub and but she decided to light herself on fire and i think she threw herself off the bat the uh the castle or whatever they had a castle then and uh this was seen as kind of noble grief i would say which is also similar to the samurai traditions yes there are cross references between cultures even yeah well samurai traditions have so much in common uh thanks to a lot of hollywood but um with uh westerns and i kind of want to get into that a little later but i want to i want to juxtapose this with uh, a modern myth um with a character in lord of the rings which is um also something i want to talk a lot about and nerd um the character of eowyn which is the she's the royalty of this kingdom of rohan she is this really attractive young woman who you know is got it really hot for the main character not the main character but uh one of the main characters um aragorn because you know he's this king he's got everything he's handsome he's dashing he's daring he's the ideal man um that kind of thing she's just smitten with him and she tries so hard and in her grief instead of just being like i can't have this man because he straight up says in you know no i'm like this is not going to happen and he spurns her often and repeatedly and so what she does is she tries to show him that he you know she takes on male characteristics and becomes you know a warrior and goes on and kills um the one of the big bads the the witch king so this wraith type thing if you've seen the movie she stabs it right in the face and that's not the end of her journey because she gets wounded there and ends up finding a suitable um love out of that and learns the value of um i guess feminine virtue through the action of masculine virtue and and her with regard to her relationship to another character faramir and so these different i guess approaches to feminine virtue and to feminine action really tell us a different story. And I think the juxtaposition helps because one of them is the story of Rome. This is what a woman, a noble woman, this is what a woman would do in this situation if she's spurned and has no, no recourse. And in this, this is kind of what a woman in our society would do. They lash out in a certain way and they come around and learn a greater lesson. And which kind of also shows a maturity in our storytelling as well because lord of the rings itself is 
the myth of our society in so many ways and that's why it resonates so hard with so many people in our society and they don't know why why is this such an important thing why is this such an important story why do we keep talking about it ad nauseum why do we reference it why are there so many memes <laughs> and then and i think and i made this and i've had this in my head a while but they ask the, 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 the one of the core philosophies that constructs lord of the rings is found in the end of the book where the actions of the smallest member of society have an effect on the entire society and the smallest person can have the greatest impact and that's what happens in the story you have literally the smallest people this representative of idealism and almost soft uh democratic society uh in the hobbits where they are these you know chubby little um puffballs of uh non-conflict literally uh he sets that up in the books and then he sends four of them out on the most grueling thing ever to try literally everything about them and they save the world um for a time and this comes this is a reflection of what we see our society wanting to be everyone can make a difference everyone has a some role to play and these are ideals that we want and we get this out of this it's like and it's 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 more than just like well if he can do it i can too you know those asinine little things where they show you somebody without a leg running a marathon and it's like you know it's good for them but like that doesn't that's not an inspiring story an inspiring story is something that's couched in the meaning and it's couched in the logos which lord of the rings definitely is which is why it resonates and so this like something like a western also resonates with it and that's very well as lord of the rings is very british i would say the western and even the samurai movie is very american thing yeah <laughs> because you have this person who's going out on their own to make use of their own um skills to survive a hostile world world um using just what's on their back which is very american story um what are you gonna do well i'm gonna go west and do what probably die but i will be the one to kill me uh in the labor of farming um that, and that's, that's that's sort of the purpose in the undertone like the superficiality well, the of yeah. the story i think is less important than the actual conflict or conflicts of interest that they deal with during that journey do you know what mm -hmm. i mean well, so i to oh, yeah, me the on. myths are more important to have as some sort of um launch off point for rumination right so I, I don't know much about Lord of the Rings, so I can't really refer to those yeah. specifically. But similar stories, like uh, you're familiar with the the Trojan War, and yeah. the myth to the start of the Trojan War is all about like Zeus throwing a party, and then uh, what like Eris isn't invited, so 
an, a golden apple gets thrown into the into the ring that says for the fairest yeah. or for the most beautiful or something like that. Yeah, and, he chooses... and then there's like three of the gods fighting over who's the most. Like, if you're a god, you don't care who's the most beautiful. First of all, and second of all, Hera is like their mother, so well, <laughs> you do if you're the Greek gods because they're created like that. They're like, I'm not just the yeah. personification of good. I'm also the personification of certain you know darker what aspects of humanity it's intrinsically human for people to fight over insane things and then mm. cause like this giant calamity afterwards because it gets so blown out of proportion like the metaphysics of the metaphysics i think is what really makes it stand the test of time and why people sing and write about it is because these are things that we do within our mm. own um mm -hmm. within our families even never mind friendships and work relationships and everything it's like a daily grind where we're constantly having apples thrown into the room and we're all fighting over scraps when it's not even important. And those things get blown out of hand. And specifically, like I would think that that story of Zeus throwing a wedding, not inviting somebody, and then somebody throwing the apple of discord and just to screw things up is gossip. And it's not like they're outright saying, like we're talking about gossip here and you shouldn't gossip about your coworkers. But the story itself it makes people, it resonates in a way that is familiar to people who have had those types of engagements with other human beings. Right. So what and I think the, the, the important part of mythology isn't specifically that the stories are interesting and fun and exciting or, you know, epic. It's the fact that they make you think deeply about like everyday things, but they do it in a way that's so interesting that you don't realize that you're dealing with those deeper subjects. Right. Because if you look closely in, uh, into that, I'm going to elaborate here. If you look closely at that particular story, um, the question is asked of three goddesses. Uh, was it Minerva? Uh, not Minerva. Um, I think it was Hera, Aphrodite, and, um, and Athena. And so Athena, one of them, yeah, and they Athena all and was if, offering wisdom and right, so was offering they Helen. all offer different aspects of success and like worldly success. You can have, um, you, you can know, be a warrior, you can have the love of your life and have nothing, or you can have reign over an entire dominion or yeah, something and like I think, that. Yeah, I think one of them was like wisdom. Um, yeah, that was Athena. Yeah. And she said the wisest warrior, basically, because that was the only purpose for wisdom back then was to kill people. <laughs> Paris chose wrongly and started a war. But he war. chose humanly. Humans yes. do that all the time. Which is what most of those those stories are about, and which is why we still tell them and why they're still like, yeah, that makes sense. And I was like, well, the stories are old and they, uh, you know, they're so they're so basic and they're not basic, but. We yeah, have derived the so much from them and we reference them. They have become, um, but it's like the depth of them. That's important mm -hmm. in my opinion. And it's because the these stories are tricking people into thinking about things that are hard to think about that they would otherwise just avoid. Most people don't just sit there and meditate on existentialism and metaphysics and stuff as a point of fun. Right. But when you give them a story that's fun and the kids can act it out and people can play music to it and you can go to a theater or a play where you can sit in your cove and have coffee and read it. Like there's so many ways to, um, to take part in it. What's the mm -hmm. word for it? to, um, to receive it. There's so many different ways yeah. of actually receiving the same story that it, uh, it forces people subliminally to think about deeply subconscious issues that we struggle with as human beings in a, in a social environment or right. as a cultural species. 
And storytelling through this type of um, like abstraction, I think is the reason why we have this part of our brain is because without it, we would either contemplate reality constantly and get nothing done for our entire lives because it would be so we fascinating to us that. <laughs> or we'd never think of it at all and this sort of helps find that gray balance in between and i think well, religion I serves that purpose a lot too because in yeah. religious texts the whole point of the religious text isn't for you to memorize verses and like have laws written in stone literally even though they were written in stone as you know part of the stories the point of the stories was always abstraction and the point of it was always to make it more memorable and easier to digest intellectually yeah out scaring and, people away and then also having to give them direction in their lives in the process so right. it's not just dealing with the conflict and having no resolve it's also telling what the ideal outcome should be or what you should strive for or the idea of perfection and right. then it's always and, forgiving people for being imperfect well no it, that last part everything up to that last clause was correct i would say because the greek myths do not let you get away with being imperfect in fact they say oh you're imperfect and the christians do this too you have original sin you can forgive you for being imperfect but you're not going to get away with it and they uh, whenever humans act without imperfection or think they're not imperfect the greek gods just slam the hammer down on them but that's <laughs> so not entirely horrifying. accurate though because when god created humans he said like specifically after he kicked uh, adam and eve out of the garden you guys are imperfect <laughs> and yeah. all of humanity is imperfect and that's the whole reason jesus came down so if you right. don't take it, the word for word literally and you look at what the actions are of the stories the fact that god would split himself into another thing to experience humanity and then forgive people's sins by suffering the worst possible pain you could imagine that's evidence and proof that they're not to get out of it but there is a forgiveness for people's imperfections and there's an expectation that nobody is perfect because only the son of god mm -hmm. lived that life that was perfect and right. even jesus's life he doubted god right like three times or something and this is the same with like um muhammad uh he preached submission and peace and love but he also went to war and slaughtered people in the name of God because they were offending him, just like David in the Bible, in the Jewish Bible and everything, uh, in the Torah or whatever. But like every tradition has this where there's a juxtaposition between, or a dichotomy, I mean, between good and evil. But the entire book and the entire doctrine is talking about the gray area, but mm -hmm. not directly. It's always indirectly. They'll, they'll explicitly right. say the black and white, but what the purpose of the entire volume is, is the gray area, even though right. they're not talking about it directly. Because if you tell me, if you tell someone something directly, they'll tell you to, you know, tell you where to go. But, you know, you need to do this and they're like, neat. But you need to show them why they need to do that. They need to like, um, it's like, um, it's like not putting the right ingredients into a recipe and seeing it come out. And you're like, okay, I get it. I'm never going to make this mistake again. Or you'll do when you're tired, but you'll you'll uh you know put the right amount of ingredients in but it's because you we don't know things um literally we don't know things um discreetly we know things within constructs of um everything we can see and we 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 we, we learn things with regard and reference to other things we can't not because everything's connected um and 
you um i do want to kind of get into what makes the difference what's the difference between like a story and a myth but um well i think you said everything that needed to be said there well there was one other thing too I, i was just trying to make i was also trying to make another point with um the way that we we adopt religions as part of our cultures and heritages Mm. it's because of like i was talking about before the subliminal affect of it that creates or generates that type of need for thought that we otherwise would be foregoing but it's also a community development thing so regular stories are fun and interesting but a myth that you actually live your life by um, not necessarily out of strict belief, but just the fact that you've heard it so much and it's part of your culture and the way you speak and the the, mm. the turns of phrases that you use to abbreviate complex thoughts because they're uniformly accepted and understood between peoples. I think as a communication, as a form of communication, myths are really important. And yeah. language is like the biggest part of our intelligence as a species too. So being that we're social species and we communicate very articulately, having some type of metaphysical reference to discuss things that are hard to discuss between right. bodies of yeah. intelligence, I think, um, I think that was that's the crux. super important too with like trying to segue into what is a I myth think or that's, whatever. Yeah, I think that's a better way of saying what you were trying to say before. Um, and because life the the key about it is that you know reality itself and human like reality itself is complex to a degree that um you know the combined minds of our species have merely graced the surface of its complexity and then even our own perspective within that is infinitely complex and so we need these devices and it's a i hate saying it like this because it kind of makes it um, religion is just a device by which we live by, but it's more than that because within that we have, um, evolved in a way evolutionarily. Now there is a, um, uh, one of the Sapkowski evolutionary biology lectures gets into the evolutionary biology of religion. And it's been a while since I watched it and I should have watched it before I got into today's podcast, but here we are. And there's a growing talk within that, those circles of the fact that there is a biological aspect. So we are constructed with regard to, you know, and this is kind of why atheism is kind of a weird thing and atheism manifests in the way it does. But religion is a biologically manifested thing. And we we do this and this is essentially what we're talking about and you put it very well um uh just a moment ago uh in a different way i think but there's even a part of the brain that's for it i think it's like the the parietal lobe or something like that like there's an actual physical center of the brain that a lot of drugs even stimulate like ayahuasca mm -hmm. and lsd and things like that that, and psilocybin like give people religious stream what's that (laughs) We should do a DMT stream, <laughs> live stream. We're taking ayahuasca. Let's go. Um, that maybe we we like, would not post it. <laughs> it would be scientifically ignorant to ignore 
uh, mm-hmm. religion in general, not just yeah. for the culture and not just for the language and, and not just for the importance of tradition and family values and well, things stuff that, like that bring us together through religious religion. experience. Because, but denying that would actually cripple your brain. You'd right. have to do something else with it, and you'd start adopting other myths just because that's how your brain works. Right, and which start is why developing the, types of OCDs like don't oh, step on cracks. Okay, and, good. I know where I want to go, but the um. You can wait for me. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I need to wait. I need to wait a, a few minutes for this. Sorry. I'm just happy I know where I want to go now. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but it's that 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 portion of the brain, like you mentioned, is I should is look there. it up actually. Yeah, and it because there is documented religious euphoria religious experience across every culture you know back to like the shamanist traditions up into even modern christianity has uh religious fervor and it's it's a state of mind that you get in where you seem to just be in contact with reality with god with the gods with whatever and this happens a lot to everybody of every religion even the atheists and it's a moment of contact i would say in the most plain sense with the logos you're understanding your position and you're understanding the the glory a lot of times you can get this uh very simply you don't need drugs for it just go stand but at the base of a mountain and look at it you get that nuministic experience that that the feeling we've used this before you look at the Hubble Space Telescope pictures and you get a sense of the grandeur of the numinous of, sorry, the, the universe. There's an aspect of um, the gods there and there's an aspect of um, this. And it's not like, well, I believe that the universe was created by God. It's like, it doesn't matter what you believe. There is a almost I, okay okay spiritual aqueductal gray by the way it used to okay. they used to think it was a parietal lobes but they found a different spot put a picture of that in the in the <laughs> in that spot but the the spiritual experience i would say is a way of engaging reality um and every iteration of religion and through these experiences, through these storytellings, brings us to a more representative spirituality, which I guess would be to say that we have a more, our stories represent better what reality is. Our stories are better suited to doing what you were explaining before, you know, uh, kind of like these, you know, you read the story, oh man, I'm feeling a lot like, um, you know this and you reference a certain story or whatever and that iterative process over time has left us with this but we also have technology now before we get into that i want to get into the fact that i claim that the atheists and atheism is a religion just like christianity just like buddhism just like islam it's the buddhism same thing religion 
it can be but it's There's religious aspects inherently. just kind of like religious taoism and philosophical taoism don't drink the poison <laughs> but, well it's like uh, saying science is a religion though philosophy is just a process of thought through reason well, and logic well you, actually you bring that up because science uh religious science and we're seeing it a lot in homeopathy and astrology and yeah and they 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 invoke the name of science without knowing what it is it's literally just a method for engaging the world like what is this i don't know poke it (laughs) and did you write it down good that's called science now and um (laughs) they that's it but we invoke it now the atheists have you know there's like a lot of atheists out there that um will um claim oh, there's no god there's only reality there's only objective reality you know okay that's there's a lot we don't understand and there's so much we don't understand but that's not an argument for god um either but the way they go about their um atheism they they have their own gods they're creating their own you know uh mysterium and 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 uh Whole, they have their holy books and they have they have their saints and they have their um religious experiences and they have their their things that go because they're the only way to start explaining the world in a non-religious way for humans is to tell it in a religious way to make a myth to make a myth that doesn't involve god and that's why atheism is kind of cheap because it's just like oh i'm denying god it's like cool you you tried to explain the universe by denying one aspect of it It, you know it's it's no different from saying there is god though so like that's what makes them a religion yeah it's the fact that it relies on faith that there is no god when agnosticism would specifically say we don't know there may or may not be one right agnosticism is not a religion but atheism is because there's a blind belief belief which is the word faith that there is no god there can't Mm -hmm. be a god or they're sure yeah. of it you know what yeah. i mean so the difference here being though with something like buddhism you don't have to pray to buddha like there is no right or wrong buddhism whereas every other religion there are very strict rules to say you must believe in christ to be christian right you must yeah. believe in in tradition to be confucianism or whatever so say i'd say even like... confucius's philosophies are religious because of the traditions and rituals whereas i would contrast that with uh, an atheist sort of following um, like Marvel myths and movies and Hollywood and things like yes. that. They're they're creating stories and heroes and they're using the same processes. They just don't realize because they're not self-aware. Right. So it's basically like a childish version of religion where they're not prepared to study or learn something that's well thought out and complicated and messy. They just want to scrap it all and have the easiest possible way of thinking. And right. that to me is why religion is so important and why it's persisted through the ages. Because you with religion, this. you're forcing people to think when they otherwise wouldn't. Yeah, and which you brought up one thing. You brought up the right, and you're talking about the Marvel movies. And I want to belabor that a bit because you know it's good content. But no, it's a good way. It's a good way to 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 get into it because you get you know oh, you don't believe in God, okay? So or you don't you're not going to read the Bible. So you're going to go watch Star Wars. You're going to go watch Marvel movies, and you see people engaging in this activity where they. Um, it's kind of kind of a weird thing that people do and i think it can be explained where you know the action of like people 
engaging too hard into the lore of something. The and fanfare. The fan, yeah, you know, getting into the fandom, getting into the lore. And this is the religious tendency that, uh, you know, I need to know the canon. I need to know what's going on. I need to know the story. I need to know all the people associated with it. I need to know, uh, you know, I need to memorize the Star Wars wiki or whatever, because, you know, um, and we did this in one, I, I, I worked with a guy at a paint store and he wasn't a bad guy. He just loved Star Wars. That was his religion. Uh, and he lived by it actually quite, you know, he, he, he took the lessons of, you know, the Jedi to heart and it kind of, gave him direction in life and it was his thing and he would like quiz us on like star wars trivia and it was it was fun for us but and it was fun for him but it was his religion and i think that's what i mean by the new gods luke skywalker was a god to him it doesn't exist and it didn't need to exist and that's the fascinating part about it is that we don't really need our gods to be real anymore which i think is absolutely fascinating um and if you sit and think they never were like well, people adopt them because there are extremes in all cases anytime you say or do something there's going to be an extreme on one end and extreme on the other and then the majority of people are going to be in between somewhere right, right. So some people take that fanaticism and they would take it what some would call too far. I don't care what people do. So like if oh, somebody wants well. to be really into Lord of the Rings lore or like the Witcher lore or anything like that, like all power to them. If there's an apocalypse, those people would be so well suited to tell stories around a campfire. And oh yeah. Absolutely need that for like community building and stuff. What I so mean- having people that know these stories that well is actually useful in a social sense. Right. Because it's like a it's like a backup plan or an insurance plan for for community development right right as long as we have tv and stuff we don't really need these fanatics but like eventually you might and thankfully there's a small percentage of people that get that deeply into it but But there are a small percentage of people who get that deeply into religion too like not everybody who runs around and believes in a certain thing does the exact same thing as everybody else right not everybody takes the word of god literally most people who are uh, devout Christian or whatever will claim that they take it literally, but in practice in their everyday life, they absolutely don't. Because if you really understood eternal damnation, you would be so afraid of doing anything in your life just to avoid hell. You wouldn't do anything. And people go out and make mistakes and get messy all the time. So clearly I... they don't actually deeply appreciate how um how infinities work <laughs> like the i think that's I don't, I don't think that's giving them enough credit honestly um and eternity is a very very long time nothing right. in your life would be more important than avoiding eternal anything bad well you'd never lie you'd never they swear. rely on the forgiveness aspect of it but i still think that's not giving enough enough and them enough credit because one of the things that i meant by that was that when Christianity was at its height, the Christian world didn't just believe that God existed. And a lot of the Christians nowadays don't just believe. That is the way the world is to them. And I think that's a better way of looking at uh, religious people. To a Hindu, it's not just, oh, this is the God I follow. Well, they still say that because that's the way we say it. But they see the world like that now i can't see and we can't really 
both of us, I don't think, can see the world like that because we're. Oh, yeah, I grew up like that. Right. But. But I know the, most Christians don't read the Bible. And if you actually believe that right, God wrote not, it, nothing would be more important. You'd never read anything else. That's all you would read. But people read bits and pieces of the Bible because fundamentally, deep down, they know that it's it's a mythology that helps them. No, and that's not I think, to say it's right or wrong. It just means it's imperfect. It can't be perfect. If it's physically in this world, it can't possibly be perfect. Perfect. Right. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah. But what I'm saying is that the interesting part of it isn't that isn't the adherence to it at all like i don't really care about adherence to it um the interesting part is the fact that we've replaced that aspect the the belief that explains the universe um which is the way the greeks and the christians did it with something a lot different with something that we've kind of clipped off an aspect of mythology and taken almost its vital essence of what makes a mythology and distilled it into just maybe even democratic creativity um, where come up with a story if if people like it they'll 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 do it if there's meaning in it people will keep reading it if if there's uh if there's well, that meaning will carry it through history, uh, so to speak. And I think it's that subtext that makes it compelling, though. Like without that deep subtext, right. we're not compelled to want to know it or follow it. You know and I, I mean? think that 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 universality that we talked about earlier, and yeah. like you get that aspect of it. And I think that's a good lead into the thing because um, someone said recently, and I'm sorry, I can't remember who said it i just kind of someone said it in a podcast randomly like a couple weeks ago and i don't remember who it was um you can't write a myth and i'm paraphrasing here but you can't write a myth you don't just sit down and write a myth no one can do that that's not how they're done um well stanley was pretty good at it stanley well stanley was well let, let's get into this because that's you can't write a myth, but the selection of stories turns uh, those stories into myths. So over time, myths stories get turned into myths. Shakespeare wasn't writing myths, but the encountering, the constant encountering, the constant mulling over, the constant taking of his tropes and characters and and people turned it into a myth. It encountered the the story itself encountered reality, and was adopted by you know as part of the you know but he also the, brought in like fairies and jesters and all types of oh yeah well he like half of the half of the words we use were invented by shakespeare it's in not not half but a lot yeah, but not <laughs> like, just his invention but i mean like the tempest and stuff weren't there like woodland nymphs and yeah he know, was playing off stuff? of he was also like he wasn't inventing that up from scratch that's what he i was mean. taking stories existing myths yeah and that's actually a good example of that because he was taking existing stories putting them in and that the fact that they're continued turns them into a mythology and i think what makes it a mythology is that it has that element of um an extended and adopt adopted themes and adopted ideas but it also has an aspect of it that it was written by someone who was engaging with the logos without blinders on without 
you know, they were engaging honestly with reality is kind of a way I want to say it. And I don't think everyone can do that. I think Shakespeare was special. I think um, the people that made up Homer were special. I think um, Virgil was special. And I think, honestly, um, people like you know, even theoretical physicists of today who are practicing actual science also engage in the same type of practice yes. when they discuss like the holographic principle of information being stored on a on a on the surface of black holes and things like that, or yeah. like the Big Bang itself. Like for the bang to occur, time must occur, but time was created within right. the Big Bang. And so, so they're like telling themselves a story of... and they're like looking at the math going, what the how the... Yeah, gotta... and we're just still trying to figure it out, but we create stories just like particles and Heisenberg's uncertainty principle and like superposition and entanglement and quantum tunneling. Like there are right. all kinds of actual sciences where we describe and we still use myths to, you to, could, to outline how it works. You could argue science is just the most boring story that's representative of reality. It's, it's not a, it's not a fun story to tell. I think it's the most fascinating. I love it's fascinating. It. <laughs> it's not a good story to listen to, but once you Oh, I love it. it. Theoretical once, physicists have the best lectures like right. Leonard Susskind and Sean Carroll, and they're all fantastic speakers. Max Tegmark, he's right. awesome. But Fox. most people aren't you. <laughs> no, um, I know. But, but I think the, the thing is I'm saying like explaining how practicing. a line works isn't going to be like it's going to be fascinating, but it's not going to give you that religious experience. Now, Carl Sagan would say that it's not the science itself that gives you the religious experience. It's, you know, there's still that numinous with regard to science. It's your encounter with something like you look at a galaxy and you're like, you could look, you could stare at all like a galaxy, a picture, a high resolution picture of a galaxy forever. But understanding what it is, brings you into relation to that. And when you're in relation, when you understand the reality of it, that science has given us uh, that, sorry, I don't, let's just not say that. Let's that scientists using the scientific method have given us. Um, you understand that like, it is something worth reality itself is something worth being uh, having that gives you that can give you religious experience, but the math itself doesn't. But but it the, does though, because it translates to metaphors. Like when we talk about space-time continuum being a fabric of space-time, the only way we can describe it, even in mathematical terms, is using tensors that describe cloth simulations, right? Mm -hmm. Like we use the same types of imagery and, and metaphors to replace okay. reality okay. in our language, but also in our science. I think and as we describe of... things, we generate stories to describe how things move in interact even with having math for like quarks and protons we, and antimatter and stuff would you say we need stories to know why there's no yeah, symmetry but i don't think i don't think this the the data itself is the story i think the data itself is the signal um and i think but that's the, what i'm getting no no, we generate no, no, the story. no hold on i think that the story it's i think that the religious experience that you can find in it the mythology because doing the work of science is very very similar to a meditation and i think encountering that is where it lies not in the thing in itself 
Right. So what I'm saying is the description, though, of the science, of the discoveries and of the quantifiable, measurable things, mm -hmm. the descriptions of them, the way that they're expressed in journal articles or in in treatises or, you know, theses right. or whatever. And the way those are projected into hypotheses are myths, the hypotheticals of like right. information okay. theory um, never being erased. Right. Or um, black holes evaporating, or just like the end of time, the big rip, the big crunch with the universe either right. expanding forever or contracting into nothing. So, Those explanations are stories of what's going to happen based on mythology, like uh, a creation of mythology. Without the gods and without all of that, what we're describing is an interaction with energy and matter that's mm -hmm. quantifiable, that creates a consciousness that can contemplate it. So right. like the universe being the eye that sees itself and like creating eyes like humans to have consciousness just to pr just to observe itself. It's kind of like, like it kind of like in uh sorry there was this group in Babylon 5 that show I like where they said like essentially that where the universe it, people are the universe trying to understand itself. Uh which is a neat yeah. way of looking at it. But it, it's a common theme though because that is basically tantamount to the Tao or the the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost. Well, it's, or I've been using, Arjuna and Shiva and Well, Ganesh. that's what I mean by Logos. Like when I say Logos, I'm using that as a uh, as a synonym for Tao, for the the way, for these like the interaction between you and the world. And when you're going down the way, the path, um, you will be in accord because you're going along with reality. And when you're working against reality your myth's going to be wrong. And I think that's where you get bad myths, like movies that just don't click where you watch them and you're just like, that had no bearing on reality or that was just a bunch of stuff that happened. We've all watched movies or read books where just like stuff happened. It had no bearing on anything. It was just like, it wasn't exactly Shakespeare uh, or it's just, you know, basic didactic like we're gonna count to 10 stuff but um which is uh shallow attempts at coaching things in stories like you know i'm talking sesame street but the but what's important to note is that they're not different or separate like even our so? science contains myths that are still current today that people believe in and this is getting back to what you were talking about with the atheists or whatever right they have this blind belief that things are figured out or they're capable of being figured out and there are intrinsically things in nature that can't be known you can't know the speed and position of a subatomic particle at any well, given point in time as far as we know i don't think no when... it doesn't physically exist because particles are just points in a field the field hmm. is what exists. Well, and we can measure science... a field by finding one one point, but you can't measure its speed if it's stopped. Right. But there are things that science is given and like a lot of stuff that reproducible effects in uh in the universe that yeah, and allow... this is what and I'm that's trying not to explain a story. You that's keep just me off. <laughs> right, because it's the, the, the double split experiment is proof that observation changes physical reality. So when you shine a light through two slits on a wall, it produces a wave pattern. If you look at the particle, if you shoot them one at a time, they will produce dots on the screen. But over time, all of those dots aggregated together will again create the interference pattern of a wave. Mm -hmm. But if you look at it on the other side, you actually collapse the waveform. The field stops acting like a wave field and becomes discrete. It becomes a point. 
just from observing it. Are you gonna because a photon this, has to hit that thing and come back to you for you to actually observe? Are you gonna argue that that means that the world is subjective? What's that? I, I don't know. Go on. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, but that's what I was trying to get at, though. Even the science has demonstrable proof that's reproducible through experiments and a bunch of experiments that that it's not determ uh, it's not um, it's not deterministic. What happens? We don't know why in, that in, does that, though. Like that is metaphysical. That becomes a mythology. Then, if things are um, like well, the hypothesis becomes the meta the the story. Then, because like it's just a hypothesis that as to why that happens, or even if that's happening at all. We don't know why that happens. Well, we so do, it's because just there like, are fields, eh. and when you well, interact with a field, it collapses the, the probabilistic wave pattern into mm -hmm. a discrete point. That's the science. Right, but we don't know why the observation itself makes that happen. We, know we do, because to observe something, you need an interaction for it to come back and, and have a sensor be shut off. The only way to interact with anything is by using the smallest possible subatomic particle and then detecting it back at when it when it interacts. Okay. So the thing is, there are reproducible um, patterns like this because you can you can use like sheets of gold and blast um, blast lasers and mm. see it tunnel through the other side of a gold sheet, and you can quantifiably measure and predict how many will go through based on the density of the material that you're shooting at it. So right. like the science itself. Tells does, you that the universe is non-discrete until it's observed. Right, but so how does the, the observation then, itself? How, the mythology no, sorry, from how the does science, the observation itself get into? I'm trying to explain that the mythology of the science then is to say that the Big Bang then creates things to have consciousness to observe itself. Essentially, that's what it's getting down to. That's the mm. only possible conclusion that you can draw based on the science alone, without a mythology, is to create a mythology of it. Like it's self-inventing, it's recursive. I don't know. I think I'd need to see the mechanism again. I need to see the experiment. I need to look at it again to make a judgment on that. Well, I'm not asking for a judgment. I'm saying that there are mythologies in science and people who think that mythologies are wrong because of science don't know science. Science develops mythologies too. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. Well, we have, um, well, the science is a, nexus for that because you have you know look at Gal galileo might be a good example of this where he's like this data shows this and everyone's like no it contradicts my story and it's like well you know we're allowed to tell more than one story at a time and they're like no off with his head um but that's not what they did or said but um well they did threaten him yeah, <laughs> yeah. um and so i think he just went into exile for a while he was threatened several times Oh yeah, exile's but he, not. But he was even doing dialogues. Like he wasn't even outright saying that the church was no. wrong. He was doing it like subtly through stories, again and, through a mythology, and trying to get to a deeper truth. Yeah, and by, for those listening, exile isn't a isn't a light uh, thing. It's like, oh, they just sent him somewhere else. It's like, yeah, but somewhere else usually means you don't have access to anything. Yeah, sanitation, uh, food, shelter, police, like nothing. <laughs> yeah, uh, so. Um, and then you're you're a barbarian if you go to another civilized society, right? So like they'll treat you like an outcast or a third yeah. class citizen or whatever. Strangers were travel was discouraged in the ancient world. Okay, so one thing I wanted to get in, and I was trying to get into it, was that like we tell ourselves stories, and I think I want I do want to make a distinction between just stories and myth because everyone tells stories, but it doesn't make it 
the mythology essentially because there's a lot of bad storytellers out there and i want to kind of get into that and what makes something fail as a mythology wasn't Why? that what we were talking about though with the underlying depth to the story that's what made it mythology and not yeah. a story you kind of went into science though, and i didn't really know where you were going <laughs> well you had but, mentioned religion and atheism and science right. is the reason for atheists and science also has mythologies that's what i was pointing out right so what i wanted to get at though was kind of looking at the stories we're telling ourselves nowadays with regard to like more um more popular myths that we're trying to tell each other so you get stuff like um so the yeah the question i wanted to get into was why when someone tells a story does the story just not hit so someone puts all their heart and soul into a story someone makes a movie and there's dozens of people involved and they put it out and it's got all the markers of what should make a good story and it just kind of flops it you know the the you know we see this with something like um something like uh the star wars movies that are recently come out where you get the first movie was a myth that relied on tropes that had come before you get elements of uh modern world war ii myths um you get elements of you know good and evil which come into it um the way things are right and wrong how to uh had elements of eastern mythology in there um and it all kind of came together in a with regard to kind of a campbellian hero's journey um which drove the narrative and everyone just watched it and was like i get it and they ate it up and they watched it again and again and again and became household gods of many people and then they made more of them and people... I think it's the way they engineered them though they made them yeah. formulaic there was no complexity or depth or artistry to it it was just right. like we need a character to do this we need a side plot to do this we need a joke here we need a sidekick here yeah like they just put pieces together and threw it out and said we'll make money on this because of the branding right but the original Star Wars had depth you were rooting for terrorists and you had like you know, a giant empire, which was supposedly trying to cause, you know, spread peace across the galaxy, who's mm. the evil villain. So like there was complexity in the nature of the construction of the story. Right. It wasn't just the characters being good or bad, right or wrong, and, you know, evil doers. We have an easily recognizable injustice, system of injustice. Then you have some people who are just kind of choosing to not even forced into it they're 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 they're, they're drawn the into it through they're drawn into it the call of adventure uh yeah. as uh campbell would say and he even like he follows the hero's journey quite um quite closely and uh one of the things i think that's happening you brought that up is like there's no you kind of hinted at it is like you have like a committee doing it there's just you know do this do this because you can't and that's one of the things that I find fascinating as well is that you can't just have put all the pieces together and say, you know, it's not a stew. You can't just like throw a piece here. Oh, we need a bit of this. You need a bit of a few member berries and you need to have, you know, this kind of imagery here and we want to have this. And then we got to stick in a bit of our message and then poof, uh, 
you have a movie. Now anyone can make a movie. I could go outside with my cell phone right now and make a movie. I could like make props out of anything and just like call it a movie. It would be a movie. It's a film if I <laughs> made it long enough and it would be terrible. But I think that belies the fact that it's a lot more complicated than that. That that iterative long iterative process of discussing over the proverbial campfire as to, you know, telling the story over and over and over again. And I think why I come to the individual as uh, talking about like Shakespeare, the, 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 the genius or the person of talent, the special person who can see what's going on is that that person has a singular idea of how to bring the story man- or manifest a story from what was. And so, you know, essentially some you, you can imagine it in a metaphor of the campfire again you can say you know there's a bunch of people sitting around a campfire and once one, someone says oh and then i'm gonna make hercules have another horse and he's gonna stand on the horse and everyone's just like shut up that's dumb and some guy's been sitting there for a couple hours going okay i've got an idea and then he just tells the story and he just kind of let it flows out of them you know and they let him tell it and it's amazing and you have that then I guess the telling itself would be a religious experience of sorts. But the um, what's happening is a lot of the stuff, and this, I'm getting this from, uh, from something I've noticed, is that all the stuff that I really like, all the stuff that I've really enjoyed, all the media that I've just, you know, been drawn into without any effort is stuff that when you look at the production of it, they just kind of let them do their thing. And I find that very interesting because you get um, like all the books I like or the video games uh, and you see this in like, I guess uh, the new Star Wars series that comes out, you get this one series, uh, The Mandalorian, which was really good. There's a bit of message in there, but it's still really good storytelling. And what happened was they just kind of let them do. They didn't know why it was, it was just a side project and everyone all and everyone already, it clicked with everyone in society for a short time. And they, and the people up the head didn't know why, cause they had all this other projects going on and nobody liked them. And what happened was they just let someone tell a story. And what's happening there is someone's plugging themselves in to that. And they're able to see reality and they're telling the story with regard to what they see or maybe not even what they see. They're not trying to tell something explicit. They're just trying to tell a story and they don't even know. I don't even think the story, what the lessons of the story are consciously being said. And I think that's the thing. They're just trying to say something and they don't know what it is. And this is what it comes out as. And everyone's like, I don't know what that is either. And it, and, but they read it and they read it and read it and they do it. And the ones that hit are the ones that stay and become mythology. And this happens, and I think that aspect of it, maybe you could call it love, is what makes the mythology manifest itself. Um, I think what makes art is the imperfection in the the artist. So when you have one person doing something, their imperfections can manifest as something that's even greater than they intended originally to produce. But when you have too many people together, they start correcting each other's imperfections, mm-hmm. and then the too story many, is bland. Too like many cooks it falls in the kitchen. flat because there, there's no, there's no, um, like there's no character to the characters. You know what I mean? Right. And, and that's well, having, one person has one thing that they're trying to be like. I don't know what I'm saying, and I gotta yeah, get so it. So having out. an engineered, formulaic type of story is a way of making something like um, just flat bread. 
or if you get too many cooks in the kitchen, uh, what happens is everyone wants to put their little slice of truth into it. And like one person at a time. And that like, and the thing, one of the things I find interesting is that this works, I guess, to scale. So you have, think of a movie production company, you have a guy and he's got an idea. Uh, I don't know, think Stanley Kubrick or something. And he makes a movie. I want to tell the story of um, a guy in Hal, uh, Hal <laughs> or uh, a guy going into space. And he's got this vision. But, and Stanley Kubrick was notoriously like, you know, someone come up to him. And if, if he didn't have time for you, he would let you know that he didn't have time for you. He was not one to take fools lightly. Um, and he had like a How vision. many people understand the monoliths in his right. movie? So <laughs> he get it. But the thing was, is that everyone in the production crew would have had their own vision. You know, so think of the, um, what do you call them? The, 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 the wardrobe people who've got to make all the costumes and the spacesuits and the laser guns or whatever. Uh, there weren't laser guns in there, but whatever. And the, the people who make models, they all have their little area and they're being creative within that area. And so it's like, you have to do this, but they're not contributing to the overarching scheme of what the idea is because if you get that someone comes in and say oh we should talk about you know the civil rights movement that's happening or something like that and it's like no i want to talk us i want to tell a story about you know humanity evolving into something greater uh with regard to the rest of the cosmos and blah 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 blah, blah. and that's discarded you get one story but within that story people can still be creative so the wardrobe person can tell their can add their genius to that wardrobe thing. They can make, you know, they can be creative within their own realm. They're influencing the whole, but they're working as king of their own kingdom within the empire of, you know, 2001, the space odyssey, which is a weird metaphor. I'm sorry. I'm mixing metaphors here because I'm kind of, but the thing is to, to, to your point, to sort of like put a pin on it. Um, Mm. if you had more than one director, they definitely wouldn't have had those monolith scenes where you spend 10 minutes with monkeys dancing around a big black brick, because yeah. most people would have said that, that just throw that out. We have a long enough a movie as it movie. is. <laughs> it's already a two and a half hour movie. Why? Like we don't it's need three to- hours, but this the not much talking. Like it's a, it's a sit and think about it movie. <laughs> and that's the thing. So it, because Kubrick could do it on his own, he got to include things like that, that we wouldn't understand until long after it was produced. Mm-hmm. Or that we could discuss at least long after it was produced. Whereas if you have too many directors, all those little imperfections, like I hated those scenes. They were so annoying to me. <laughs> but all of those little imperfections would get wiped out and then you end up with just something bland. Well, Completely something... flavorless, no personality. It's just this happened, this happened, this happened. Another but like with Star Wars, be... you get complicated characters like Han Solo. Like a smuggling, you know, arms dealer who murders people and... You know, yeah. like he's a womanizer. He, he's not a good guy, but he becomes the hero. But he's a good guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But and that, that's the conflict in all of us because every person deems themselves good, but every person does wrong things right. at and least I at think, some point. I honestly think you're hitting on, I think you're hitting a nail on the head, but I think you're hitting a completely different nail. Um, it's, it's a weird way to say it, but because you hit, and I think you hit two nails actually which was the first one being um you get something like if we look at kubrick again we look at barry Lyndon, and you see his flavor 
And that's kind of what you were saying, I think. And you see with Stanley, with Barry Lyndon, his movie was very, a lot more artsy. You, you definitely saw his, cause a lot of the scenes in there were, were framed as if you're looking at a early modern painting uh, or a Baroque painting or something like that. And it's, it's, it's a gorgeous movie, but within the gorgeous movie, there's a story of a man being told and not a very good man, but, and this is the second nail that I'm going to get to is that he's a very complex man, but to, to, to labor on the first point is that if you have someone else's vision coming in, it would be discordant because he's trying to have a theme. He's trying to make it all the, um, it's trying to all stay in the same, have the same feeling, have the same milieu flow together from beginning to end. And if you have someone, a note come in from outside going like, well, we should all brush our teeth. And everyone would be like, well, what was that? that? That was, it's like, it's a stark thing. And we have this in movies. A lot of times you see this with propaganda where all of a sudden you'll get, um, you know, uh, the communist party coming in of China when they want to release a movie in there. And then like, and nothing happened here, or, you know, the character will take an aside in one of the new Disney movies. And my wife was saying is like the character, uh, in the Mulan movie, which my wife watched and she said like, yeah, the character would just stop every once in a while and say something about, you know, the good of the group over the good of the individual and just the plot would go on. But after that, um, what would happen was, um, you, you, you get this discord and people notice that because they're expecting this, uh, this flow of ideas that is related to each other. So when you write, read a book and all of a sudden there's a recipe for pancakes in it, you're going to notice everything has to flow together in with the same theme, with the same mood, with the same, everything has to do it. And and Kubrick was probably the best at this. Now, for the second point he did is in Barry Lyndon, which is an amazing story. It's a story about a guy who um, goes through his life. He's born in, I think it was Ireland, and he falls in love with a girl and makes a whole bunch of bad decisions and then runs off and makes a whole bunch of more bad decisions and then, you know, grows up and is a complete jerk of a person and makes a whole bunch more bad decisions. And at the end of the movie, this horrible person, this person that you wouldn't want to associate with in real world, you are at once being like, what an awful guy, but you are sympathetic towards him and you understand the tragedy of this rakish fellow such that you feel bad for him. And this happens through an amalgamation of, you know, lighting, story, uh, music, costume, um, you know, uh, timing, uh, framing, all this stuff comes together in the mind of the one creative person that's guiding the vision of all these people who are honestly uh, working with that in regard, you know, whether or not they're enjoying it. And I heard Kubrick was kind of a uh, prickly fellow. Uh, doesn't matter because the vision that came out of it transcended what um, the man itself. And I think with someone like 
on a on a more popular thing that you gave uh, specifically with the example of like han solo where you got this guy who's just kind of living as a you know uh clandestine businessman uh in space and on a spaceship uh with lasers and anti-gravity and all this stuff that doesn't exist and yet we don't care because that doesn't matter uh, which is actually something that's interesting to get into but this and i think this may be what you're getting into is that even though he's this jerk of a fellow we can still see elements of ourselves in that character and i think that goes not just for han solo but we can see elements ourselves and i know i can i can see elements of myself in luke skywalker in darth vader in uh well even people like leia oh no but leia's a woman you can't have you know you can't understand the the perspective of a woman it's like yeah but elements of her personality are you know things that i've seen in my own life um but i think that's what makes all stories intriguing or compelling is having when they can do characters like that yeah and the the point is the difference between a good story and a bad story is one that we feel we can relate to like something that compels us to keep wanting to know the the character yeah or to to be invested in their success emotionally to actually care whether or not they they achieve their goal or if they you know tragedies when they die at the end it actually hurts because you wanted to see them succeed yeah shakespeare captured this in his characters and i'm not a scholar on shakespeare by any means but he captured in the sense of in, in the same way we do with modern day like crime or drug or um any any of those types of like the sopranos or power or the wire and things like that um we capture the same types of shakespearean tragedy within our characters and that's what compels us to get to know the story and and follow it yeah and then once you've invested in the story and you know a whole bunch of background like tolkien's lore or the witcher lore once you're invested in the world and the universe that it's set in, all of a sudden everything around it becomes more interesting. So like with the Marvel Universe and the DC crossovers and stuff, people who are really into comics are really into comics. Yeah. Like most people are somewhere in between, but like there's enough fanfare around the actual, the, the universe that they create out of lore and understanding that and being like mentally or emotionally participant in it, I think is what um it drives people to want to watch garbage even because they just they they love it so much you watch and you bring up garbage and i think that's really interesting is because i've noticed myself do that is that i'll watch something great something that drives me in like um i don't know uh, i don't even need a like kenshin kenshin just captured me and i watched 140 episodes of a show just because i loved the the, the opening salvo and then you watch something like Kenshin. And when, you, when you're younger, Kenshin, Kenshin's not a complex story, but it's got a lot of good themes in it. And when you're a teenager, those themes hit hard. And then you're like, I want more. And you, like, you crave mythology. And that's the thing. That's one thing that's interesting about humanity is it's not just a thing we do. It's something we crave. It's like an addiction and you want more. You want another story. You want that feeling that, uh, that maybe that religious experience or just that feeling of comprehension, that feeling of engaging with moral values, even, I don't know, it's, maybe it's all these things, but you want more and you crave it. So you'll go get junk food <laughs> and you're like, okay, uh, what's related to this? I'll go watch 
you know, uh, I don't know, something worse. Or um, one of the things is like I liked, I remember watching like Star Trek or something. And then you watch like some Star Trek knockoff and you're just like, it's not the same, but it's but we good. we can right? mythologize anything too, like athletes and sports. Like we can mythologize teams and, you know, um, the Rams yeah. just won the, the Super Bowl. So like, Does yeah, we're won? big Rams fans in this house. Yeah, this but came like, out a little we, late, but this, we, we recorded this the day after the or the two days after the Super Bowl. So, yeah, but um, like my team for, for English football, the premier league is Liverpool and they won it two years ago. And it's the first time in my lifetime I've seen them win too. So like, I think it's pronounced soccer, <laughs> English football. He hit me. <laughs> but the point is our, our teams are now enshrined in our brains and our memories. Like we remember all the players. We remember all the big plays. We remember all the big goals. We remember like who won which trophy for when through this type of um, like continuation of a story. And that's right. very similar to the mythology. And, and we I do think... that with like, not just sports and stuff, but we do it with athletes and their backgrounds. And well, you we can look it at it like you were talking about. You we can look at religion. it. You can look at it structurally in sports. Like what does the mythology of sports do? Uh, and if we explain it boring and boring and structurally, it connects you to your community. And because, well, who's watching the, like, who's watching the Winnipeg Jets? Well, people in Winnipeg. And it connects everyone together. And so you have this story and everyone's telling it, engaging it together. And they're literally engaging in it. Well, you're not playing. Well, no, but you're there. And you're there with other people and you're there with the community. And this story, which is, it's actually the best reality TV you could get. And don't watch any other reality TV but sports because people are actually trying to get something and then they do. And then they work within the rules, which every story has to achieve a thing and whether or not they do it. Oh, and then the third period, you know, and then he scored, but then they scored on us. The jets are really bad for this. Uh, and then we got scored on in the last minute, super bad at that. Um, and then we had to go to overtime and we lost in overtime and everyone in the city is just like, Oh, and everyone's telling everyone, everyone has something in common now structurally. And we tell each other a story maybe because it's the only story we have to tell that day. Maybe because it's something to talk about and fill the awkward silence. And it's all of these things. It builds community. Myths build community. But it also forces us to think about those deeper questions. And it's a lot like music, like an album and a, and a superstar musician is often mythologized. So like you'll find really, really big fans of like Phil Collins or Genesis or whatever, right? Yeah. Why do people die like, at 29? It's yeah. some metaphysical bullshit. <laughs> I don't get the depth to it, but doesn't matter. The point mm -hmm. is there are groupies and people who, who mythologize even music you, creators oh. and their stories and their backgrounds. And within the lyrics of the songs that they sing, they're describing those deeper values without explicitly saying them outright. Like one of now you've things... got music like I cheated on you. I'm so sorry. Like it's really right. shallow. Well, and that's the thing. The but... shallow music belies the fact that the stars themselves are the gods. And I remember hearing, listening to a lecture in Eastern religion class that um, he said, essentially said that like uh, the Hindus just can make gods out of nothing. They can just, this person's a god, that person's a god. And they, they treat actors a lot of times, like Bollywood actors as gods. And they'll have like a picture of their favorite Bollywood actor that they, that they love in like literally love in their shrine with all the other gods. Cause they 
you know, see that as some sort of nexus of power. Oh, okay, that's just getting too metaphysical about it. But no, like we, Jackie Chan in China, he's huge. Yeah. And you have this, but when you look at the power some of these people have and that they're exercising even now, these celebrities, is that they're acting like gods and they have godly power to just say, I say this. And, you know, people will listen because they are, word comes from down, from on high. And Hollywood and the music industry are leveraging this. I don't know if knowingly or not, but they're, they don't need the songs to be good. They need their gods to be interesting. And that's, they're leveraging that for a quick buck, but people still treating them like gods. What's this person saying? Can you believe this person, uh, you know, slept with this person, blah, 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 blah. And there's the Bibles come out every week in the form of like tabloid magazines and this and that. And you follow the story of your God or your favorite, this and that, or the Royal family. And people adhere to this because it's, 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 it's the thing that brings meaning. Now it is a bit shallow because sports, if we go back to that for a half second is interesting because I've seen in sports, you know, you got to work hard, you know, he's, you gotta like be good or, you know, you can't do that on the field. You can't, you got to work as a team, this kind of stuff. It always comes up and it never comes up unless, you know, with certain members of my family, it comes up exclusively with sports. Like the moralizing happens, the ethical discussion light happens when there's a sports game on and you'll these virtues of hard work and teamwork and getting along with people and doing the right thing or and even between they have segments of like them growing up and having like rinks and doing for the community like charity works they do there's always backstories on all these athletes during the games and they describe it all in like excruciating detail because it doesn't yeah no that's exactly right and we do that and sports is probably healthier than tabloids uh but um, I think well, that, and they provide more good. Like yeah. they incentivize people to exercise and have fun and work as a team. And like, there's so many good values to draw from sports and athletics oh, yeah. that you don't get from tabloids because tabloids are strictly gossip and misinformation. So nothing useful comes from knowing something that's wrong and for it, you know, believing it. <laughs> a made up story of a made up real person. Okay. I'm saying like a celebrity is a made up person, but they are real, but are they and but to like photoshop them with a big me. belly and say they're pregnant and they're hiding it is just like that's so useless if they're not actually pregnant and they're not actually hiding it like right. nothing comes from that investment of energy whereas the investment of energy into sports it draws a whole bunch of other senses like community and values and hard work and exercise and you know diet nutrition charity and all this other stuff too so like choosing which mythologies we follow and recognizing that they're all mythologies, right? From science to religion and everything in between, I think is helpful because then it stops us from fighting about the inconsequential details. Mm-hmm. Like we start focusing on the actual substance rather than just the, the superficiality of the written in stone words saying, no, you quoted it wrong or you interpreted it wrong or yeah, this God did this, not that God or whatever. Like those details are so irrelevant. In well, the grand scheme of things, the important and the gravitas of the, the, the myth, the usefulness to it in triggering that part of our brain that we can't get rid of or dissect, the point of it is to have a deeper thought when we're like, we, we, we're repulsed naturally from thinking that hard because it gives us a headache. 
Right. And it gives us that ethical primer, I guess, would be an interesting way. Like it downloads an ethical primer into our head uh, passively, which it sounds so boring and to say it like that, but that's kind of what happens. Uh, And I think it's like an evolved trigger too. Yes. Oh, definitely. Eventually we might not need it like a hundred thousand years from now because we have everything we need in front of us. But like right now we can't deny the fact that we've evolved. (laughs) Right. But now being human and being a human that has gone through a process of it, 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 I think this is a good place to kind of start wrapping up is that it's such a absolute pleasure to engage in these just on a spiritual, on a physical, like every aspect when you're engaging in these stories. Now you have to be careful because you can get too wrapped up and your, your mythology can, could be, you know, you only deal in star Wars where you could be dealing with, you know, aspects, mythologies that can lead you to, you know, get a job. (laughs) And, um, because Star Wars lore isn't really going to get you a job, but engineering lore is definitely going to get you a job. <laughs> um, it's better chance. Now that being said, on once you're done work, once all your responsibilities are over, there's nothing wrong with engaging with myth. I'd say it's better to engage in more, in better myth, in higher quality. Get the good stuff you can. You can afford it. We can all afford it. We've democratized this stuff. But the other thing is, like, uh, even in Shakespeare's time, they had seating for the plebs and everyone was going in, like, of all classes. All classes were watching Shakespeare. And it was seen as just kind of sustenance. You should be able to watch entertainment because you should be able to engage in myth. It's almost, like, I don't want to say it's a right, but it's part of being human to engage with myth. And to get rid of it, because, well, you know, we only need to engage in the objective reality. And maybe in a hundred thousand years, we won't need it, but we won't just because we don't need it doesn't mean we can't have it, I think is one thing. And we should just tell stories. And I think being honest about telling stories and being honest about how we tell stories and treating it as something we do is it's not a bad thing. And I don't think engaging it is bad. I think it can be unhealthy like anything else, but. um... I think the biggest thing just as my final comment is that it's impossible to avoid it. So even people who think that they don't engage in myth, they do. You just engage in different myths because that part of your brain is still there and it's still going to attach itself to something in your life because that's what compels us to have myths. Like we've, We've been doing it for like tens of thousands of years as a species. Like we can't not have supernatural ideas. Mm-hmm. Like until we figure out what consciousness is and put it in a box and like create consciousness out of, you know, silicon yeah. matter or whatever. Like the question of consciousness is still going to be something we contemplate. And as soon as you start doing that, you're delving into the realm of myth. And right. there's nothing wrong with it. It's just being self-aware of the myths that you adopt makes you less likely to be manipulated by your myths, first of all. And mm-hmm. second of all, it guides your your train of thought so that you're not wasting your energy thinking and memorizing specific uh, inconsequential details. And instead, you're favoring the contemplation of the deeper metaphysics of the conflicts of interest or the, the issues at hand of virtue and honor and heroism and 
you know, life's purpose and meaning and right. all of these actually important, hard to think about things. That's what the myth is all about. No. And there's nothing wrong with a myth and there's nothing to say that it's unscientific to have a myth because certain myths can't be disproven. We can't actually know for sure that God didn't intervene because you'd have to be God to be overseeing God. So and like there are certain types God of logical fallacies <laughs> that people fall into that don't actually matter. It's literally irrelevant to the story and teachings of Christ, whether or not he was physically the embodiment or the son of, of, Christ, of God. So like having oh, those, like or the, like going to war, the obvious example, like shooting people because of their belief. Obviously you've gone off track with your myth. That's yeah. not the point of story. Actually, you brought that last point there was really interesting. And I'm sorry to the viewer, but this is probably going to take us off on a tangent. And I have this note here and you segued and said, and it's kind of like, if you think you know reality better than the passive meanderings of, you know, 10,000 years of billions of people, um, that kind of hubris in myth-making, I think is a lot of what makes bad stories. You know, you get, uh, you know, stuff like Scientology, where it's like, I'm going to create a new mythology intentionally to, you know, and it just, it's, it, 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 like some people buy it, but you know, not, it doesn't resonate with humanity. It's not universal. Or you get something like a lot of what's being created now where they see the power of mythology and I'm like, okay, who's they, but I'm talking about, um, you're getting a lot of stuff out of Hollywood nowadays. It doesn't make any sense. That's just kind of like what's going on. What are they trying to tell you? And you look at it and it's just a, you know, it's like a postmodern messaging or it's got like social justice stuff stuck in there, or it's got stuff. Um, well, the right's not really making anything. So they're not really doing any of their own myth making. Um, but creativity is not their forte. They're conservatives. <laughs> Let's, let's stick with what we have that's not um they're just not doing it i'm it's kind of what i'm thinking i don't want to paint that broad of a brush but what we're seeing now coming out of hollywood is now a lot of just blatant moralizing along lines that do not really exist with immorality like diversity is literally just skin color and they're just pushing this at us or uh they're telling, they keep pushing the fact that, you know, there's no difference between men and women and a 90 pound girl can beat up, you know, legions of thugs in any movie. And it's just kind of like, eh, I don't believe it. And it, you get cognitive dissonance because they're trying to tell you this is reality and they're not. And so I have this note here that says, and I must've written it when I was thinking about this at some point where you get art made to adhere to momentary fads rather than eternal truths will just be propaganda. And I guess, what did I mean by that? <laughs> but you get, you're saying people are creating an image that they want other people to adopt and they use their, their stories and visual imagery to push that type of projection onto other people, as opposed to showing them things they already relate to. Right. They're trying to enforce exactly. a type of view rather than show them something that understood intrinsically. Right. And you get this with Nazi Germany where um, stuff like, and in the early 20th century with like stuff like Triumph of the Will, where they're like, you know, we don't like black people says um, the KKK and Triumph of the Will is the KKK movie. 
and they are presenting something and you watch it and it's just like it's an interesting perspective on history as a primary source but i'm not going to watch it being like oh you've changed my mind because that's not how like it's just racist it's literally just a a I think meditation. the intention is to normalize it, but that's how a racist person would try to normalize something that's weird to them. You know what right. I mean? They do it so so dumbly that it's just obvious and in your face, and you're just like, or stop rubbing it in. Just have them there and stop making a point to notice it. Like right. every black character I see in a movie or TV show now, they in their lines have a thing like, oh, it's because I'm black. Like they always point it out, and you're right. like, I can see it. Just normalize it by being there and existing. You don't have to say it every single time. Like, we really didn't care that you were black. (laughs) Or like, we noticed. Like, you didn't have to say it. But somebody who doesn't get it thinks that a black guy has to say I'm black for people to understand. Well, and this is why I don't, like, I'm really worried about things like, and not worried, but like, disappointed with things like the new Lord of the Rings show. Because I... I know Chris doesn't follow it enough, but I found, I find a lot of the myth of Lord of the Rings really strikes me. And I, I, every time I get into it, I'm just like, "Mm, yeah, thank you for re-upping my moral center. Um, But they're making a new show and the trailer seems like, like there's going to be nudity in it. And there's the trailer seems like there's going to be a lot of, you know, um, I'm going to sound like a racist here, but like, there's a lot of, unnecessary ethnic changes and gender changes that um yeah that makes me sound really right wing but um it's a myth intentionally made for a european specifically like it's a english myth this is a mythology just like the aenid was the mythology of rome lord of the rings is the mythology of Britain and to some extent America. Um, it resonates a lot with Canada because you know we have that same fatality, but it's also based strangely, uh, not strangely for it, Tolkien, but strangely for how it resonates is it's based heavily on Catholicism. And for some reason he wrote a Catholic myth with no real reference to Catholicism that represents the values of Christianity in such a vivid way that it just speaks to us. And they're just going to say, no, what's important is representing. We need to have more women on screen. It's so unbelievably shallow. Oh, we need to make um, black female people do all the things. We need to degradate our male characters. And you get this with a lot of like old guys who are noticing, like, why are all the old why are all the middle-aged guys on TV bumble, bumbling around? It's because that's what they think people want to see. But it's a shallower representation of what you want. So the message... I think we'll grow out of that, though. That's just a temporary phase while people are like knee-jerk reactions to realizing that they've been so off the wall for so yeah. long that they just jump oh, to I th- was it extreme. I like, think they just it went too. too far. I think it, I think it will grow out of it too, but I I don't think I think we'll grow into a new form of stupid, um, kind of like public opinion uh, Walter yeah, Lippmann style, where it's like, <laughs> yeah, we're gonna we're gonna find something else stupid to talk about. And it's the right quantum now, world. that's what yeah. we're doing. And because like twenty years ago, it was I don't remember what it was twenty years ago, but like 
we all of a sudden weren't allowed to talk about um I guess 20 years ago it was Islam. 20 years before that, it was like, maybe we should love the Russians. 20 years before that, it was like, uh, you know, maybe we should not think Germans are all, the Germans are Nazis, kind of that kind of stuff. But we get through this and we're working our way through it. It's just, it just feels really stupid right now because we are, this is another topic, is that we're not used to being able to have such a democratic discourse. <laughs> so that's it. So I think... That yeah, so affirmative action aside, we're still on the right path and we're still doing more, more good than harm. So I'm not completely against the actions we're taking because at least it makes it obvious that there needs to be a change and an adjustment. Right. So like, I understand and I get it. It bothers me and annoys me and I, I, I complain about it, but it's way better than having signs on doors that says no Jews or, or Italians or, you know what I mean? Like we're so far beyond women's rights to vote or like giving people mortgages based on their skin color. Right. I so think thankfully we're, we're improving. It's just, we we're still in the process of, you know, being mature about our, our improvement. I think what's happening now is a bit of an overcorrection. Uh, yeah. And, and that's not, what that always yeah. happen. But, and the thing that when it comes down to it is if I watch it, will it resonate as mythology? And I think that's something you can, I think I'm going to end on this is that when you watch something, pay attention to your reaction how do you engage with it what gives you certain um like uh, this is an act of self-awareness i guess what changes to your eh, you know what chemical changes happen when you're watching something do you get mad there was one star wars show we were watching and megan my wife was just getting absolutely livid she's like that's not how people work she was just going off she couldn't explain it it just was such so discordant with reality to her that like it begged me but i was just used to it and it was just so discordant with reality to her that she just had to let it out and we had to like move it uh same with the star trek show uh there was one scene where one of the i'm gonna swear here where one of the characters goes just it just looks at the main character this this god that we've put as a representation of um integrity knowledge and decision making and leadership and she just looks at him and go like who are you to do any of these things you sheer fucking hubris and we just turned it off and we're like no this is this is not this is not good it's just we turned it off because we realized that if we were going to keep watching, it was just going to make us angry. We we're just going to complain about it. And I guess this is about two hours of complaining, but whatever. And the we went and watched something better. But when you're watching something that is a positive representation of reality, you it's not always going to be like a lot of war movies, like Band of Brothers is good myth-making for war. Um, and um even though it's hard to watch or something like the movie downfall like that's not a happy movie um but it's a positive representation of the way people act in those situations watch what you do when you're watching them what bugs you what glorifies you what ex what makes you exult into this and what do you grab what ethics and virtues do you gravitate towards because we all gravitate towards different ethics and virtues someone will be like i like stories about heroism some people are like i like stories about 
um, sacrifice. Some people like stories about leadership. Some people like stories and all, it also could depend on mood, but this is a good way to examine yourself because encountering the myth is encountering parts of yourself. And so you have to pay attention to yourself while you're engaging with the myth. I think that's where a good place to let it go. Yeah, thanks for listening. You've been tuned in to Frivolous Gravitas. You can check the description for RSS feeds and social media links and all that kind of jazz. All right. Catch you next week. See you guys. Have a good week.